All right, tonight, the finishing touches are being put on this section of the letter that has to do with practical teaching and commands for, for daily living. But before closing the door on that section and moving on, it's really important to zoom out and take a wider look at the picture. Otherwise, it's so easy to take those commands for godly living out of context. And when they're taken out of context, they have a way of becoming really burdensome really quickly, right? I mean, be honest now. It's okay. You can be honest. Remember the word of God spoken to you a few weeks ago from chapter 3. Don't lie to one another, right? And don't lie to yourself. It's okay. You can admit it. You find some of the commandments here in Colossians to be burdensome. They don't all come easy. You want to rebel against some of them. Some of them you may want to do, but can't seem to find the strength to do it. Ask me how I know. Um, People need more than pure authority, more than just baseless dictates. The functional, if not explicit, motto of the average man is, it's my life, I'll do what I want. And that's just it. People do what they want. You're ruled by your desires, whether you like it or not. And insincere obedience never lasts. Just look at all these, these governors across the country and their dictates. It's, it's just a recipe for lawlessness, and we're seeing it. The people won't comply, at least not for long. It's just sad to watch. And that's why the church reminds you every week that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Someone who gives out of compulsion or guilt is just going to end up disillusioned and bitter in the end. It's no different when your king tells you you must forgive one another. If your heart's not in it, you're going to end up disillusioned and bitter, and it's going to be a sad thing to see. Your heart must be motivated to obedience. Self-manufactured willpower is the worst the most ineffectual, the shortest lasting fuel for godly living. It's like putting diesel in a Tesla. The results are not going to get you far. (laughs) You're just going to ruin a beautiful creation. That's why when God commands right living, he also supplies the proper fuel for it so that you can do it joyfully, so that you can endure hardships along the way. The Lord desires you to be happy in your faithfulness. And he himself is more than happy to give your heart reasons to rejoice and obey. They are the context of God's story and your part in it. Paul is determined that you know and understand that context and not separate your goals for godly living from it. He is sure that knowing and understanding the context of your lives within God's story will powerfully cause you to grow and produce godly, glorious, joyful living. Hence the title of tonight's sermon, Truth Sets You Free. Paul is so concerned for the church that you would know the will of God and knowing Him have strength and security. Just look back through this letter how far you've come so far, and see the importance of knowing and understanding God's will. That is to say, knowing who God is, what He's done, what He does, 
what he offers to sinners, what he promises that he will do. That's what he's talking about when he says, know the will of God. Not whether or not you should live in this city or that city, or whether you should major in mechanical engineering or philosophy. It's about knowing the character of God. He starts off by giving thanks to God for the fruit that is already accompanying the gospel throughout the world. As it is also among you, he writes, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Knowing the grace of God in truth sets you free to grow great, big, tasty, juicy fruit. Chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? Why would he pray like this? Because the more the knowledge of God's grace fills you, the bigger the bounty of fruit it will produce in your life. He's not saying you need to get a PhD. The aim is not full knowledge. The aim is being filled with knowledge. That simple knowledge of God, the simple knowledge of God that a child can understand, that it would fill you up, that it would saturate your mind, would overflow into every nook and cranny of your mind and heart. Did you recall it? Did you think about it all the day long? Chapter, verse, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 21. And you who were once alienated, that is to say you were strangers, you were foreigners, you were outside of the family of God, outside of the promises of God, and enemies, enemies in your mind by wicked works. You were enemies of God in your mind. So something in your mind was or still is keeping you at odds with God. Verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So we're talking about revealing a mystery, knowing it, making it known. Verse 27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. There's something to be known. There's a mystery to find out, to be revealed to your mind. So what do they do? Him we preach, Paul says, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. How is it that they present every man perfect in Christ Jesus? By preaching, warning, teaching. That is, by opening their eyes to see and understand and know the truth of God's grace. The truth of Sets men free. Chapter 2 starts with this. For I want you to know, he says, what a great conflict I have for you. Why would he want them to know unless that knowledge is going to have an effect on their lives? He continues, that your hearts may be encouraged. That's the result that he wants from them knowing. Being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. There are great riches for you in understanding. Great riches to be had. There is assurance of your hope to be had. There's assurance of being loved, assurance of being forgiven. It's there for you in understanding the good news of Jesus. The God-man, the hero of sinners. 
Then twice Paul warns the church not to be deceived or cheated by persuasive words. How is it that you can be cheated? How is it that you can come to ruin? By believing things that aren't true. By not having the truth, not understanding, not setting your mind on the heart of God, on His will. The truth sets you free. Wander from it at your own peril. Chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Set your mind. Your mind has got to be focused and attached and locked on to your brave young Savior. The spotless one who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. It's those times in your life when your mind is set on things above that fruit grows. That you have peace. That you have joy. That it's not hard to obey the commands. A mind set on Jesus is fertile ground. The kind of ground that produces beautiful, plump, juicy fruit. Fruit that satisfies your soul. Fruit that makes you say, "Mm, it is well with my soul. I want more. And on and on he goes. Your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. That, that is why it's so important to Paul that the church knows the heart of God. Yes, he has things to teach the church. He has things for the church to do. He has things for, for the church to stop doing because they're filthy. But he doesn't just say, quit doing that, you idiot. No, don't you know better? Well, of course you know better. You know you shouldn't do that. But the real power comes in knowing God and who he is. In understanding the context of your life. There's this dizzying, just dizzying chasm. You stand on one edge and you look across and it's so far to the other. You become afraid. You're filled with awe. Such a huge chasm between you and the one you call God. On that side stands the Almighty the builder of mountains, the architect of galaxies, the life giver, immortal and eternal, the pure and beautiful king of kings, right in judgment, wise in counsel. On this side, you have little filthy people that rebel against him and lift up their voices in utter contempt saying, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. It's my life. I'll do what I want. And what I want is to hate my neighbor What I want is to lie and cheat and steal so that I can get some sort of cheap, momentary pleasure that fades away and after I have it, I hate myself. That's what I want. And you know what? I'm willing to betray the King of Kings. I'm willing to betray my Maker to get my filthy little desires, my cheap thrills. That's the context of the Gospel. That's the bad news that sets up the good news. The good news is that He wasn't pleased to leave you in such a pitiful state awaiting the burning wrath of the just and almighty God. Instead, it pleased him to humiliate himself, to humble himself, to humiliate himself, to bring you peace. Not by just wiping the slate clean, but by taking all those convictions and saying, yes, it's true. I don't deny it. These are heinous crimes you've committed and they they deserve death. And that punishment, it cannot be neglected. It cannot be set aside. That would be wrong. But in order to bring you peace, I will take that punishment on myself. 
And he was crushed. He was crushed for our sins. Our sins, mine too. He was crushed for our sins, for your sins. That's the context. That's your context. That's the truth that sets you free to live in the newness of life that the Bible calls you to. If you have trouble keeping the commands and find yourself being resistant to the commands, if you find it hard to respect your husband, to love your wife, to obey your parents, to obey your masters, if you find it difficult to not lie to one another, to put off anger and filthy language, if you find it difficult from time to time to put on those tender mercies, to be kind and humble, to have patience in hard times, if you find it hard to forgive, the answer is not to muster up all your willpower and just do it. That's not the answer. The answer is to know God's will, to go back, to go back, To not move on until you have it. To latch on to Him. To look at Him. To fix your eyes upon Him. To not look to the right or to the left, but to fix your eyes upon Him. Until He fills you with the knowledge of His will. So tonight the text says, Continue earnestly in prayer. Being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us. That God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards, towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. That is, to be dedicated to prayer, to be committed to it, to be devoted to always praying, to be watchful in it. And you know that, that prayer is powerful. And you have your marching orders to continue earnestly in prayer. So why is it that so few are? So few are devoted. Why is it so easy and so common to skip Or not even have a place and a time to pray. Why aren't you happy to go to a prayer meeting? Why isn't prayer part of your social interactions? Well, what is prayer? Is it not the voicing of gratitude? The voicing of of fears, of frustrations? The voicing of of desires and emotions? The voicing of, of your petitions to your God? Is it not the the confession of sins and the raising of your praise to Him? Is it not revealing yourself to God and looking to Him to see what He will reveal of Himself to you? This is the kind of communication that prayer is. It's It's also the kind of communication that only takes place with someone that you trust, someone that knows you, that really knows you well, and still loves you, and still cares about you, and wants the best for you, that's going to listen to what you have to say. Actually listen. And most importantly, someone that's able and desirous to help you. Children. Are there any children out there listening? If you are, the, God has a word for you tonight. 
And he asks you, and you can be an example for the adults. Who do you call to, who do you call to come look when you've just made something awesome or you've found something that's just great? Who do you ask when you need new shoes or, or when you really want something? Who do you go to when you need help, like really need help? Who do you run to when you're in pain? You run to your parents, don't you? You don't go to the neighbor. You don't go to strangers. You run to your parents. You go to your mom. You go to your father. Do you know why? Do you know why you run to your father in times of need? Because your father, he cares for you. He's known you since before you were born. And he loves you. He knows you so well and he loves you and he cares for you. He's so big and strong and has a strange way of always knowing what to do and getting things done. Does that sound like your God? (laughs) What do you know about God that makes you shout, Yes, that does sound like my God. Strong and big and he knows what to do. What scriptures do you know that reveal God as the one to run to in your prayers? What experiences have you had with God that prove to you that he wants to listen? That he wants to save and is mighty to do it? These are important questions to ask yourself because they'll provide you with the fuel for a robust and powerful and sweet prayer life. That is, if you have the answers for The more you know that he's able to help you, the more you know of his wisdom and power and his faithfulness in the past to countless generations of his children, the more you know about his desire to save, his desire to love, his desire to be a hero for his children and commune with them, the more you'll just go naturally to prayer. You're not going to need to manufacture some false self-motivation or manipulate yourself into doing it. It's going to be like talking to your parents or your best friend or your spouse, whoever that person is with whom you have that close bond. You don't need to be reminded to get in touch with that person. You don't even think about it. You just go to that person automatically when you're happy, when you're confused, when you have questions, when you need help. You just pick up the phone and call. If that's not the way prayer is with you, and you always forget to pray, and you fall asleep in your prayers, or you never know what to say, instead of beating yourself up about it, and using guilt to fuel your next attempts, go back and focus on knowing God. That's what Paul does for us in this letter. Starting in verse 12, he reminds the Colossians that the Father, quote, has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You've been welcomed into the family with all the rights, all the privileges of being a beloved son. Who are you that he would do such a thing for you? Who are you that he would do such a thing for you? What a noble, what an honorable thing to do. What a gracious and caring father you have. Who was delivered, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And how did He do such a marvelous thing? What price was paid for your guilty soul? It is written, We have redemption through His blood. 
And here, as soon as, as soon as Paul begins to talk about his beloved Jesus, who bled for him, he can't help but get carried away and swept up in praise of how majestic his Savior is. He is the eternal one, the image of God. Image of the invisible one. Do you want to see God? Look to Jesus. He is the Father's precious one. Above all, the most important, the most splendid, the creator of the earth, the oceans, the rolling hills, they all owe him their existence and they all sing his praise. The stars in the sky, the clouds, the sun, the moons, he holds them in place. This Jesus, he knows your frame. He knows how you were made. He knows your inner workings, your anxieties and your thoughts, your conscious and subconscious mind. He knows you. It's all made for him, for his good pleasure, for him to enjoy and rule over. Every breath you take is by the will of God that sustains you. A billion blades of grass on a thousand hills lift their voice in praise to their maker. By his will alone, by his will alone they grow up. And by his will alone they fade away. It's all for him, the timeless king of glory, the honorable one. And it is he who gives you life. It is he who provides for you daily. There's no greater being, no greater power. There's no greater thought than your Jesus. Jesus, by whom peace was made. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You were enemies. You rejected his claims on your life. But it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father. What kind of words are these? It pleased the Father. He was not coerced into saving you. He wasn't manipulated by you. Not persuaded. You did not convince him to do it. He was not blackmailed. He was not bribed into leaving behind his glory to come and become lowly and subject himself to shame and pain and betrayal. No, no, no. It pleased the Father to take such drastic measures for your sake. Steps to set you free from sin and bring you into his love into the kingdom of the Son of His love. No regret on His behalf. No doubt. No going back. It pleased the Father to bring you to peace through the blood of Jesus. How much more? Ask yourself, how much more is He willing, if that's the case, how much more is He willing and pleased to listen to your prayers and to be your hero when you call out to Him and say, God, help me. How in the world am I going to homeschool my kids this year? God, help me. 
How much more is he willing and pleased to listen to your prayers and be your hero when you call out to him and say, God, help me. I just, I just can't help. I just can't control my anger. I'm going to strangle this guy. In him, you were also circumcised, it said. It says in chapter 2, verse 11, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision is the cutting off of sin from your heart. Do you not know that this was accomplished for you in Jesus? He who knew no sin was made to be sin for you. He took it on. He he embodied it. He became, as it were, the chief of sinners and stood in your shoes, stood in your skin and became your sin. Why? In order to be crushed and cut off in your place. That's what it says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That is the bloody circumcision of Christ. He was cut off that you might be grafted in. Knowing that, knowing that, that's the base. We're not getting out of that. We're knowing that your heart cannot help but be stirred up to run to the Father in prayer all the day long, asking Him to keep you clean, to guard your heart, to deliver you from the evil one, to continue to cut away all those sinful growths in your body. He was cut off that you might be grafted in. Knowing that, do you think that he's going to give up on you now? Certainly not. He will complete the good work that he began in you. The Lord is willing to go to great lengths to make you clean. Do you see that? Great lengths. He's willing to do what no one else would ever think of doing for you. That no one would ever be capable of. Of doing for you. That's his will. That is the will of God. That's what he wants. Will he not do it for you. When you ask him. Will he not delight. To do that for you. Will he not be overjoyed. To have you come to him in prayer. And ask him to cut away the sinful desires in you. In your children. In your co-workers. Chapter 2.13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Praise his name. Praise his name. What joy of joy, what, days of, what day of days when he forgave you, when he took that long black list of your convictions and exchanged it for his own spotless righteousness, his own goodness, his own holiness, and breathed into you the breath of life, and you became a living being, a truly living being. When you remember this, it's only natural to be quick in confessing your sins, in constantly giving thanks in every circumstance, for you were dead. And now you live. 
You were blind, but now you see. You were lame, but now you have your own race to run and healthy, strong legs to run it with. If things are rough, if your sins are are tying you down, trying to drown you, if you're tired of fighting, if you're empty, if you're prone to feeling weak and unable to do what you ought to do, if guilt has you down, So basically, if you're alive today in this world, you need these texts. You need the word of God to speak to you. You need to be filled with this knowledge, the knowledge of his will. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no longer a need uh, to go around constantly running on empty and every day putting in five dollars to get you up to a quarter of a tank and then running out again. There's no need to do that. Fuel up, top off, and top it off again each day. The truth sets you free and it propels you onwards and upwards. It puts heavenly wind in your sails and it awakens the joy of your salvation. There are so many more of these texts. There's so many more of them. Just here in this short letter, two more hours wouldn't be enough time to go through them all. So go search them out yourself. Or better yet, grab your spouse and kids and go search them out together. Do something just weird and funny for me. Just, it's odd, okay? But go and do it. Go look back through these three, ver- these three chapters. Go and search for those truths that set you free. And post what you find and hashtag it. The truth sets me free. And share in those posts what areas... In your life, the knowledge of God is setting you free in. How is he working through his word to set you free? Paul says that the regulations do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. And and what he's saying by contrast is that knowing the truth of the gospel is what has value against the indulgences of the flesh. Do not keep trying harder. It's not the answer. Quit thinking, if only I was stronger, if only I was better. You can just kill yourself doing that. You're just going to break down one day and start weeping. And you're going to say, I'm so tired of being wrong all the time. I'm so tired of, of, of just being evil. I can't stand it. The guilt is going to consume you. Running on guilt is stupid. The answer is not to power through it, to grit your teeth and just do it. The answer is to fix your eyes on Jesus. To set your mind on things above. Who is the Father? Who is the Son? Who is the Spirit? What has He done for sinners? What has He promised you? Who is the man that the Lord, uh, who is man that the Lord is mindful of Him and cares for Him? Knowing God's will, knowing Him, that is going to be the fuel that drives you continually and happily on in your obedience, in committed prayer, and in wise and gracious speech. When you're filling up with the truth of the good news, you want to talk to Him and say to Him, God, there are people that I love and they hate you. And I hated you once, and you had mercy on me. And when I came to you, you didn't turn me away, but you brought me into your family. 
Do the same for my brother. Do the same for my brother. I'm no better than he is. Have mercy on him too. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. What a strange request for a prisoner to make. That God would open a door for him. Not the door of his cell to walk out. But a door, an opportunity to tell a thirsty soul about the giver of living water. Paul knows who God is and that's why this isn't a strange request for him. He knows the heart of God, the will of God, what he's done for sinners, what he's done for Paul. And what he will finish No wonder he doesn't worry about being freed from prison. It's meaningless to him because he knows the context of who God is and what he's done for sinners. Retirement, health insurance, a 401k, job security, what he's going to eat, what he's going to wear, who respects him, who disrespects him. It's all garbage. It carries no weight for Paul. He is free from all of that. The truth has set him free from it. It's of no importance. Knowing God and His grace being found in Him, that's what matters. The truth sets Paul free to praise God, whether rich or poor, whether free or in chains. Paul's natural prayer is to ask God to open a door for the Word, to speak the mystery of Christ. Because that's what has value. That's how he was brought in from the outside. That's how others can join the family of God. This is Paul being wise towards outsiders. It's the kind of wisdom that got him put in prison in the first place. That's what it means to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. It doesn't mean, it does not mean be super careful never to say anything that might offend or rustle feathers or get you in trouble. That is not the wisdom of God that you should be walking in. It means to live in the context of who God is what he delights in and what he's done for you. It means speaking always about the grace of God and calling sinners to Jesus. It means walking with that aim, that focus, not focused on your future financial security. What rubbish. Future financial security. Your future financial security is in heaven. Secure. Vastly abundant. More than you could ever get on earth the wisdom of god says there are outsiders stranger danger there are strangers and they're in danger they are enemies just like you were an enemy of god now if you've been delivered he says if 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 you've been delivered and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son follow the example of christ who saved you And do everything to participate in his bringing people from outside in. Be devoted to prayer. Be vigilant in it. Let thanksgiving to God ever be on your lips. 
How else does that wisdom look like? Well, it looks like speech that's always with grace, seasoned with salt. This letter is a great example of speech that's always graceful and seasoned with salt. Salt would be all the warnings against lawless behavior, all the commands to godly living, all those self-probing questions. The grace is remembering who he is, what he's done for sinners like you. The grace spurs you on to accept the salt and grow further. Some of those warnings and admonitions are hard to swallow. They are. But don't you know that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down? In a most delightful way. (laughs) How much sugar there is in this book. In the book of God. In this holy book that he's given you. How sweet the word of the Lord is. Sweeter than honey. But all honey and no salt is going to make you nauseous. This letter is an excellent example of speech. Always with grace. Seasoned with salt. It's grace, 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 and insult. He says, if then, if you were raised in Christ, and you ask yourself that question, and then the dash of grace, and then more salt, and then back to the grace again. And so it is throughout the scriptures. After all, God Almighty, in thunder and lightning, didn't command you saying, you shall have no other gods before me. That's just the salt. Where's the context? Of a gracious, loving God, powerful to save. Well, that's right. It's there. You just always skip over it. And then you wonder, how is it that I can't keep the commands? How, how, how is it that I have so little power to keep them? No. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. All of a sudden, having other gods, trusting in men, trusting in money, trusting in accomplishments, trusting in in your progress, it, it all seems silly. That's a God you can happily rely on and worship. A God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. A God who brought you out of bondage. You need no other God. You see, the grace of God... That's the context out of which you can put off the old man and his wicked ways and put on Christ and live lives pleasing to him. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, whoever you are, listen. You have a maker. He has a claim on your life, a rightful claim. You have a maker and he is calling out to you. His words are the words of life. They give life. He bids you come. He bids you come to him. He is the Lord, the commander of heavenly armies. Merciful and full of grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. That is the truth. So repent and believe it. It will set you free, free to trust, free to obey. That's the only way to trust and obey. Lord my God. Thank you so much.
What is man that you would be mindful of him? Who are we that you would speak to us, that you would be so gracious to not yell and shout, but to say, come, all who thirst, come. I have living water for you. Who are we that you would call us children? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Your promises, each and every one of them are yes and amen in Jesus. They are sure. They are steadfast. They're a rock that we can stand on. And we praise your holy name. We praise you for what you've done. Faithful throughout all generations. Lord, give us the strength to trust and obey that we would live lives that please you, that we would run to you constantly in prayer, that we would walk wisely, that our speech would always be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Oh, that you would honor us, that you would let us participate in your great mission to save sinners, that we could speak of you with grace and salt and, and, and present people perfect in Christ, your Son. Thank you so much, Lord. Protect your church and guide us. We know that you hear us when we pray. So we pray in the name of our beautiful, beautiful Savior, Jesus. Amen.